Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are discussing Abolition for the People, the Movement for a Future Without Policing and Prisons, which is Colin Kaepernick's new essay anthology. We're joined today by two contributors from the book, author of Heavy and Long Division and dear friend of the podcast, KSA Lehman, and writer, activist, producer, and artist Brie Newsom-Bass, who is best known for climbing the flagpole in front of the capital of South Carolina to take down the Confederate flag in 2015. They both join me to discuss police and prison abolition in this incredible collection. The Stacks Book Club pick for October is Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, October 27th with Nicole Perkins. If you love this show and want more of it, like bonus episodes, a community of book nerds to share thoughts with, and our monthly virtual book club, you must join the Stacks Pack. That's a community for all things the Stacks on Patreon. If this sounds like a community you want to be a part of, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Here's a shout out for some of our newest members. They include Sarah Alvarez, Jessica H., Karen Brownlow, Sophia L., Olivia T., Brian Augsburger, Jess G, Andrea Meta, Nolani Peters, and Jennifer Harris. I really could not make the show without all of you and the rest of the Stacks Pack. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, now let's talk abolition with Bree Newsom Bass and Kiese Lehman. All right, everybody. I'm very excited, as I always say, but today I'm really, really excited. Uh, I get to welcome back a dear friend of the podcast, Kiese Lehman, and bring for the very first time activist, artist, writer, Brie Newsom-Bass. They are both contributors to the brand new essay collection on abolition called Abolition for the People, the Movement for a Future Without Police and Prisons, which is the Colin Kaepernick anthology. So that was a lot, but welcome to the show, both of you. Hey, glad to join. Super happy to be here. I'm really excited to have both of you. So I mentioned to you off off air, but I'll let everyone at home know this is the first time ever we've had contributors for a collection, but not the editor. So I'm not going to be asking the normal questions of how did this book come to be quite as much because they didn't put the book together. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we'll have to wait for Mr. Kaepernick one day to tell us about those details. But in about 30 seconds or so, could one of you just sort of give the people a sense of what this book is about? 
Take it away, PSA. Okay, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think Colin would be okay with this. It, it's uh, over 30 voices, essays, pieces by people who I think purport to be abolitionists um, and who are wanting to talk to each other and talk to the world, I think, in particular ways. What I love about what Colin did is that we didn't have to synthesize any of our like points of view for this book. You know, especially if you look at Bree's piece, I think Bree would say that, I mean, I should ask you this, but it seems like Bree would write that piece to, you know, people who really rock with her. I know that Gwen Woods would have me say what I said to Colin specifically. So it's just an opportunity, I think, for a lot of abolitionists to talk to the world and talk to one another via our own particular kind of sites of interest. Wonderful. Um, Bree, how did you get brought into the project? Uh, well, I just got a reach out from Colin and the team asking if I would be willing to contribute to this piece. And I didn't even know like who all was participating on it, kind of to Kiese's point. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, I just think it's some of the most powerful thinkers. And I'm not saying that to big up myself. I'm talking about everyone. And I saw the list <laughs> of people who I was around. <laughs> I was like, you know, this is this is really amazing to have people in there from Mumia to Angela Davis to, you know, Derek Purnell and uh, Miriam Kaba. Like, I think all of that is like really powerful. And the fact that they let me write on what I wanted to write on. Right. You know, they were kind of like, would you contribute something? And I said, yeah, I really want to talk about this BS around representation and policing mm. and the way that they are clearly trying to make black people the face of policing. Yeah. Um, and, and the politics of that. And they said, sure, sure. you know, take a stab at it. So Ugh. pretty awesome. And your piece is so good, um, oh, which we'll, we'll get to both of your actual pieces in a second. Kiese, how did you get brought into the project? Uh, it was the same. Colin and the team messaged me, I think on Twitter, and then Colin sent me a text um, asking me if I would think about contributing to this piece. And I was like, yeah, again, not knowing who else was going to be in it or what was going to be asked. And and then Colin said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking what I want you to do is interview Gwen Woods. And I, you know, I'd read a lot about Gwen Woods and I knew a lot about Mario. And I was sort of overwhelmed at the, at that point. I was like, damn, you want me to? And he was like, yeah, I think you, you're going to be just surprised. And then I found out who was in the joint and I was just like, oh shit. Like, actually, yeah. like I was, I was kind of happy that it was like as told to piece, you know, I had to interview Gwen and, but I was like, I don't know if I got the chops to actually like <laughs> write a piece surrounded by these folk but yo i mean it's an incredible book fam i'm not i'm not just hyping it it, it is, is a phenomenal piece of organizing it and, is and i think art yeah i really agree and i have to be honest going into it i read a lot of anthologies i actually really like anthologies but usually my criticism is it's not cohesive or it gets redundant or or something along those lines when i read an anthology and for this i got all the way to section four before i was like wow i don't have a problem like, I'm like really into this because usually right. I'm like after like the third essay, I'm like, OK, you guys are all saying the same thing in a different way. But what I found so interesting and compelling about the collection is that you are all really speaking from different perspectives about the same topic as opposed to speaking about the same topic in different ways, if that distinction right. makes sense, which um, – and you've mentioned there's so many incredible collaborators and some of them are people that are, you know, household names in general, and especially if you're interested in abolition at all, like Angela Davis, uh, Derricka Purnell, who was on this podcast. So everyone listening probably knows that. But then there were so many people I'd never heard of that I was really excited about and, and so many perspectives. And also on the podcast, Marlon Peterson is in the book yes. as well. And I really loved his piece. So 
the collection is very, very good. I want to speak a little bit about each of you and being an abolitionist. And I guess the first question is, do you identify as an abolitionist? And how did you come to abolition if you do? And then also, what does it mean to you to be an abolitionist or who can be an abolitionist? I arrived at abolition from the realization that we cannot reform this system. I think that was my personal journey to it. You know, I've like the moment where I really started identifying as an activist and, and like consciously participating was, you know, around 2012, 2013, the Trayvon Martin case, the case of Jonathan Farrell in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, we just had all of these cases. And of course, I remember my earliest memory is probably the Rodney King case, sure. um, which, you know, I was a kid at the time, so I didn't completely understand all of it. But going, moving from a position of like, how do we stop the police from killing us to understanding, oh, no, that's actually their function. Mm-hmm. You know, really, as I started to sharpen my historical awareness, being exposed to people who have been in that camp for a long time. Um, and I think what was really key for me in, in learning this from following people like Miriam Kaba and Derricka, Derricka Purnell is like, you don't have to have a solution. Like, right. I don't have to right. have I don't have to have all the answers to what the alternative is to know that this is I don't even want to say it's not working because it is working. That's part of the problem. Right. You know, you're talking about a system that is a direct extension and continuation of slavery and genocide and colonialism uh, that the police in America are the direct descendants of the slave patrol. So I don't even want to say that it's not working because part of the problem is that it keeps getting better. We keep like refining it now. Now the lead of the, the modern slave patrol is black and somehow that's supposed to be an improvement to the situation. So I think for me, it was that recognition that we cannot reform it. And I think I even say in the piece, like, what does it mean to reform slavery? Like, what are, what are we reforming and why? Right. Uh, And I think that's how I, I arrived at the point of saying like, no, I'm, I'm in the abolition camp. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm definitely, I'm going to move over here from the reformist folks to the folks who are saying we cannot actually reform this, nor should we. Right. Yeah. Okay. Kiese, do you want to answer about abolition in your journey there? You know, I, for the longest, I, I was clear that I didn't believe in um, police, prisons, bullets or guns. Like, I just I, I don't have particular relationships with all of those, but I don't I didn't believe in them. But for the longest, I wouldn't call myself an abolitionist because, like, Brie, I thought that meant that I had to have formulated an alternative mm. to police, prisons, bullets and guns. And then once once I realized that the people who were who were thinking about their relationships and our collective relationships to a tomorrow where that shit doesn't exist, call themselves abolitionists. I felt okay calling myself an abolitionist, but 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 I'm I'm still one of those people who doesn't want the title to do the work. So mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like I, yes, I'm an abolitionist, but I I don't I would never like foreground that when I'm talking to somebody because I think that like sometimes these sorts of titles need to be talked about and not just like proclaimed. But if you ask, yes, I'm an abolitionist for sure. Yeah. There's a quote in the book, I think. Maybe it's maybe I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember. My notes aren't great. But uh, that Angela Davis says abolition is about rethinking the kind of future we want. And that, you know, that sentence is very void of solutions or very void of concrete things. And I believe I heard Miriam Kaba talk on an interview where where they mentioned we've had years and years of prisons and police and they still don't have the answers. So how is, how is this movement supposed to be, you know, why do, why are we being asked to be any different 
than the system that's been in place? Why are we being for, you know, and not that we shouldn't be better because I think that's the goal of abolition is to be better than what we have now, but that, you know, these things take time and they evolve and all of that stuff, which sort of leads me to my next question. Um, in reading the book, you know, and, and what I know of so about prisons at, up to this point in my life and police, you know, it, it came from slavery, as you mentioned. And when I think about slavery abolition, I know that there was a long movement over time to get there. And then there was a war and then Lincoln freed the slaves. And for the most part, slavery was abolished. And I'm wondering, is there a journey towards prison abolition that can be slow and go through reform? Or do you all have any sense that it might have to be like one day the president and all the governors get together and say, we're not doing this anymore? Ooh. So, <laughs> so I, I don't completely agree with the narrative that says Lincoln freed the slaves and we abolished slavery for the most part. I think that slavery evolved. I think okay. that I think that we ended chattel slavery, which was a specific kind of slavery. But I don't think, and I and I think we had a brief period of time. What about twelve years or so? That period of Reconstruction, where we were kind of dismantling the system, right. and then I think that effort was overthrown. I think the assassination of Lincoln, and then. Uh, Ruther B. Hayes, Rutherford mm -hmm. B. Hayes, who pulled the troops out of the South. I think that marked the end of that. And I think the following century of Jim Crow, of mm -hmm. the expansion of the, incar the carceral system, right. I think is what I would define as like the modern iteration sure. of that system. You know, so I don't have faith that there's ever going to be a time where like the white power structure of, you know, governors and presidents and, and, you know, the inheritors of the, the colonizing class come together and say, we're going to end this whole system. Okay. Um, because I, I don't even really think it's about crime. And that's the other thing, like, you know, I, I don't consider myself an expert in this. Like I said, sure. I'm, I'm, I am, you know, I have moved over to the camp of the people that I am studying and learning from, but I agree that I don't think it's really about crime. Yeah. I think it's about a system of control. You know, mm -hmm. and, and in order to end that system of control, you have to address the entire system. It's tied to economics. It's tied to the social structure. Um, it's tied to who gets to control the land and, and control the wealth. So, no, I think it I think it's going to require a people's movement, a people's uprising, um, which I would define as what's happening. I mean, I think right, like yeah. a movement to close Rikers and all of these things. I think that's the movement, quite frankly, the same movement that ended slavery because Lincoln right. didn't want right. <laughs> to, he, right. he had to be forced to the position, you know, that right. he took. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so interesting that you, that you say it that way. And that makes sense because essentially what you're saying is that in name only did slavery end, which, you know, is definitely the argument that I've, I've seen and heard from many people. Because the reason I ask that question is because the other thing that I've learned from the book and from studying from other abolitionists is that, you know, a society that has abolition, that has no police, no prisons, can't have racism or capitalism and all these other things. Like those two things can't function together is sort of the understanding that that I've seen. But I'm wondering, like, can we abolish prisons and policing and like work on the other stuff? Or do you think we have to like eradicate all of that stuff to even arrive at a place where prisons are gone. Does that make sense? I think we have to attempt, attempt. to eradicate all of that stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and this is, I mean, this is what's so pernicious about, about policing 
incarcerality, like if you take it back centuries and centuries, like like not only is it not solely reacting to what we call quote unquote crime, I think the argument can be made that policing in this nation and this nation state and this idea of a nation is always sort of reacting to organizing strategies. Like, mm. like it's always reacting. In Mississippi, you see this like completely like, you know, like people always talk about parchment, but they don't talk about what parchment had to do with like organic organizing that was happening in the rural south. You know mm. what I'm saying? So yeah. so 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 my, my point would be that 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 like not only are we part and parcel of long, long strategies of organizing of abolitionist principles of pushing back and reconstructing, but policing too is innovative because we have been so innovative. Right. You know what I mean? It's right. not about fucking crime. The crime is to is to have the wherewithal to say that this shit is wrong. So then that crime make so that crime policing entity, I think, then morphs as right. we talked about, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that that that's how I see it. Right. And like the the crimes, exactly. The crimes are changing. Like I just was reading an article about what's going on in Florida with giving the right to vote back. And now all of a sudden, if you don't pay your fine, you lose your driver's license. Right. Right. And so then you can't go to work to make money and then you can't pay your fine and then you end up in jail for a suspended license. And like that's a new crime. That wasn't a crime before Floridians voted to give people who had been incarcerated the right to vote. Like so totally that the crimes are evolving and the policing is evolving with the action that's being taken. That makes a lot of sense. And in North Carolina, if I can just point out, they actually just attempted to outlaw protests. I think they uh, attended a similar measure in Florida too. The governor vetoed it. But I mean, without the governor, they would have passed that. They had enough votes in the legislature to to effectively outlaw protests. Wow. Which is just incredible because allegedly that's what this country's founded on, right? Like allegedly that's the First Amendment. And, and I just want to say, and also, I, I just think that 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 also is what partially what is so insidious about what we see happen in Mississippi around a woman's right to choose. And sure. definitely you see it explicitly in Texas. Right. Because it's not just about like policing and it is about policing. It's not just about discipline. But now it's literally about making, quote unquote, citizens parts of patrols mm-hmm. to get people who might be doing something that these folk deem to be criminal. But I just think historically, I just think it's like that is our history in a nutshell. Right? right. I don't think it's any I don't think it's new, you know. Right. And how do we push back against that? Just continue to get more innovative, continue to protest? Like like what is it just one of those things that whatever we do, they're gonna come up with something? Or is there a way to break through that pattern? I do truly believe there is a way to break through or else there would be no point in continuing to, you know, get to the Thank effort. Thank you for I mean, getting me, me out right? of the bleakness. I was going to a really dark place. I appreciate <laughs> no, I, mean, I was really like going to start crying. <laughs> oh man, listen, I'm, I'm always warning people about like the bleak things that I say or like my bleak analysis on, <laughs> you know, on, on current things. But I mean, I do still believe at the end of the day, it is possible. I think yeah. it requires organized resistance. I think, yeah. and I kind of agree with Kiese, like I view the situation in America as just like one iteration, right? That's like the modern version of things that have been going on with empires for a long time, like, you know, for as long as empires have existed. And I think that keeping us constantly disorganized, like you said, Mm. policing and outlawing the ways that we attempt to organize ourselves. Um, I'm really focused on the issue of, you know, housing and evictions. I think that is absolutely about keeping people in a constant state of disorganization, constantly being uprooted, um, 
You see what they're doing with people in prison right now, trying to limit their mode of communication. You have mm -hmm. to have money in order to communicate with people. Like I think all of that ties back to preventing the masses of people from organizing in such a way that you can topple the ruling elite. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Um, so I do think it's possible. And I think if it if it weren't possible, they wouldn't put so much money into police and prisons. You know, they, right. they have to put so much in it because that's the only way they can maintain social control. That's the only way a few people can maintain social control over so many. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Reading the book and reading about the dollar amounts and coming. I mean, I, I think I knew it, but actually seeing like the like 34 billion from Homeland Security and like right. like seeing those dollar amounts was really jarring, especially um, I had I just last week finished watching that Turning Point documentary about 9-11 and all of that money and the connection between, you know, Homeland Security and 9-11 and Homeland Security and prison and mm -hmm. Homeland Security and the border. And like, it was mm -hmm. really, it hurt my feelings. <laughs> like I was really, it was a lot. We're talking a lot about ab abolition. And I know that there are people who are listening to this podcast who are not abolitionists and they believe in some form of reform. And I'd love for you all to speak because this is really laid out beautifully in the book, but I'd love for you all to speak a little bit about the issues with the reform mentality versus the abolitionist mentality. And Brie, maybe this is good for you because it kind of ties into your your piece about Black people being the face of policing and how that's sort of a version of reform. Wasn't that piece yeah. so good? So good. It? It's so <laughs> good. I appreciate it. Oh my God. Yeah. When I, I, so I found out that you two were going to be on the podcast, but I didn't know I hadn't read the book yet. And so I was like, okay, I just really hope both of their pieces are good. And I got to both <laughs> of yours and I was like, fuck <laughs> yes, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think the question, again, I would pose to somebody who is like, abolition sounds real extreme. Like, what do you mean about reform? My question is, what are we reforming? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it mean to reform? Right. And a lot of people, I mean, there are people in my community, like, especially like older black people. If you go to them, you talk about abolishing the police. Their first thought is, well, how do we stay safe? You know, right. um, because mm -hmm. the police do a really good job of coming into the neighborhood and holding community meetings with them about like, you know, what they're going to do to make sure that things are safe or whatever. But let's, let's look at the job that police supposedly do. Right. So supposedly police keep us safe, right. They um, supposedly investigate and prevent crime and they supposedly make sure that the bad guys get caught. Right. Right. One, we're not safe. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So like, it's so like, let's even say like, let's, let's forget that there is a history of slavery. Let's say there's no racism, like all of, there's no classism. There's none of that. We're still talking about a system that fundamentally is not working. Mm -hmm. It's not working. We're not safe. Okay. They spent the past several months telling us how everything is going up. Crime is going up, um, even though they keep getting more money. So right. what you're telling us is that it's not working. You're proving the point that it's not working. Right. right. Then number two, they say that their job is to prevent and solve crime. Well, we know that's not true either because <laughs> policing doesn't prevent crime. Again, how do you spend this much money? The United States spends more on policing than some nations spend on their militaries. Mm. And, it, and we still have crime. So that's not working. And then number three, the biggest criminals in the world are sitting up in the most powerful positions. Right. You know, that's the thing I try to get people to see, like crime is this selective thing. So you may have seen this summer, they were making a really big deal about this one dude in New York 
who apparently was shoplifting from Walgreens. And I was like, I I was like, the fact that y'all are trying to make this like a national story means that we don't really have a crime problem at all. Right. Like, like if the biggest thing is somebody stealing some deodorant, I mean, I read an article in the New York post, they were detailing how he like stole some deodorant and like, I mean, (laughs) I was like, really? Meanwhile, the president of the United States, the former president of the United States is launching a riot at the Capitol, is trying to assassinate uh, members of Congress, is trying to overthrow the entire Constitution. And you don't have a solution to that. And then the last thing I would say is that we already know that police, we already know that corrections officers and Border Patrol are engaging in lots of crime. Mm -hmm. They're smuggling drugs. They're committing sexual assault. They're stealing. They're lying. They're killing people. So if you don't have a way to address that, you haven't addressed crime because, right. because your your system that's supposed to address violence is only creating more violence. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so, again, you I, I can't have to tell you, like, how do we end violence in human society? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I think right. violence has, is has been a thing in human society forever. But what we can say is that this system that's supposed to address it is not working. Mm. And that's that is the dividing line between reform and abolition. And and I think if we just get to the point of recognizing like this does not work, then we can have productive conversations. Mm-hmm. But everything that steers us back towards how do we spend more money on training and how do we, you know, maybe we if we put cameras on them, they'll stop killing people. No, we we've seen that doesn't no. work. Right. They just we just have more video of it. Right. So it or the videos work. don't. The camera is broken. The cameras magically cut off. It's at, like they're you know, always off. The moments. They right. need to hide the you on know? and off switch. My goodness. Like <laughs> solve that. <laughs> yeah. Like I think I think that's all you really have to understand to mm. understand the difference between reform and abolition. Just understanding that it can't be reform. Yeah. So what do we do? And I think that's the productive conversation where we're talking about, like, we need housing. We need like a lot of these issues could be resolved by funding other things. Let's stop putting all of the money into policing. You know, you're talking about thirty two billion dollars that went into Homeland Security. We could have housed a whole bunch of people with that. We could have provided mental health services for a lot of people with that. Yeah. Could have given free free deodorant. Maybe you wouldn't have the shoplifting at the Walgreens. You know what I mean? There's a lot of things we could do. Yeah. In the book, I I wish I could remember who said it, but someone was talking about how also the reform idea is flawed because right now, even if you took the money from some of the money and gave it to schools or gave it to housing, that money is still in service of policing because the ways that our schools and housing are set up to police the residents and the students. And there's that great essay about um, like e Incarceration, and then there's another mm-hmm. one about like all the apps and how one of the apps for the bail fund is like the money just goes to people, and the other one is like, oh, did you miss your parole meeting? And like mm-hmm. even those apps that are that's the one that's funded by Jay Z. I think it's called Promise. One is called Appalition, and that's the one that's just like here's the money, and the other one is called Promise, and that one takes the money and gives it to people, but also you have to check in for your parole or your meeting with so-and-so or your this or your or your drug test or whatever. And so like even these apps that are supposedly helping to reform the system are part of the system, which right. is why so much of reform doesn't work is because it's tied back like to the idea of policing and prisons, which I had never thought about it that way. And I had a real like poof, mind blown moment. Okay, I want to 
Casey, I want to give you a second to talk about about your piece, which is so great. It's a conversation with Gwendolyn Woods, who is um, the mother of Mario Woods, who was killed by the police. And I have my big question for you is how did she change how you think about sort of the quote unquote mothers of the movement? I mean, Gwen Woods changed how I think about mothering and parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, She's uh, incredible. You know, um, I I mean, I write a lot about parenting and and this book I wrote called Heavy. And so earlier when I talked about, you know, the 30 plus abolitionists, I wasn't sure whether or not I could call Gwen Woods an abolitionist, because one of the things that she says in that piece is, I know I should not say this, but I wish the people who shot my son had to do time in general population. You know, Mm -hmm. she's like, I wish they had to go to jail. And she's like, I know I'm not supposed to say that. And so it's not fair. I mean, I I don't want to be just base, but I had not talked to anyone who was as sincerely informed and righteously fucking mad Mm. and use that sincere, informed anger to be clear. Like she was so fucking clear, fam. Mm -hmm. Like she knows what, and part of the conversation to me that like really blew me up was when, yes, let's talk about Trump. Let's talk about Obama, okay? But she was like, below, I want to talk about Nancy Pelosi Mm. as well, right? And she wasn't doing that thing where I want to talk about Nancy Pelosi and not talk about Trump. But she was like, again, it's systemic. And she's like, if we're going to talk about systemicness, we have to talk about like the ways like a lot of these politicians, this goes back to Bree's piece, kind of like purport to be walking the walk, but we can see what they're actually walking and talking and doing. Mm -hmm. And this is what you did to my son, Nancy Pelosi. And now you want to throw on a kente cloth? And then she ties it back to structure. And so for me, it was just like, I would, I'm not that clear generally. I would never be that clear if my child or my mama was shot. But somehow, like, she has channeled with Colin and lots of reading and lots of listening. Like, she, she's channeled that thing that I feel like Fannie Lou Hamer had, that informed sincerity, mm-hmm. that, 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 that you don't get much. You, know, you don't hear that kind of shit very often, right? And, and I wanted to talk about her kind of being like, I want them to do time in jail because informed sincerity is not necessarily clean. Like she can mm-hmm. say some shit that like she'd be like, I know you don't want to hear this, but. And right. I just needed, I just thought that that was great for the book as well. It's, you know, also when Colin says early on, my first attempts at pushing back were reformist. Like right. I was a reformer, you know? I just think like that, those kind of opportunities in the book, like make the book not just like a, a closed tomb, but like a, like a really sort of like uh, fleshy, organizing tool. And I think that's that's what we need a lot more of. Yeah, I agree. I mean, not to promote a different book that I love, but Derricka Purnell's book, Becoming Abolitionist, does the same thing, right? Like you get to go Mm -hmm. with her on her journey, which has a a big pit stop at Reform Town. Like she is in there and she talks about it. And I think it's helpful. It helped me to be more comfortable talking about my own feelings about abolition and wanting to be an abolitionist and like claiming that part of myself. And so I think that is really powerful in this book is like the contradictions make it more human and make it more attainable, right? Like you don't Mm -hmm. have to be Angela Davis to be an abolitionist, right? Like we aren't, if that's the bar, we're not going to get there. Most of us, maybe just her, Mm. you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. if Angela Davis is the only one who's an abolitionist, the rest of us are really screwed because like, right. There's one of her. Um, 
Brie, I keep saying I want to talk about your piece and then I keep not letting you talk about it. Will you tell us a little bit about your piece and, and why it was important for you to write about it and answer the very important question of does every single major police department have a black person who is in PR? Like, is that true? It feels like it. It it definitely feels like it. And even as y'all were talking just now, I was just thinking about how scary that like, that's what scares me more than anything. It's like, it's not the Bull Connor figures that scare me. No. It's the way that they try to make the black middle class the face of reform, mm-hmm. right? And and the sign that things are getting better. Like, you know, we have a black police chief and we have a black mayor and we have a majority black city council and we have black owned businesses. And, you know, that's that is what we are inundated with in places like, especially like, you know, Atlanta and Charlotte. Um, And even, you know, Chicago now, I mean, we see what's been happening in Chicago. They made such a big deal about the election of Lori Lightfoot as being, you know, the the black lesbian female mayor. Um, And this is supposed to be a sign of progress. And what has changed fundamentally for black people in Chicago? Nothing. What has changed fundamentally for queer people in Chicago? Nothing. You know, what happens is that we just diversify the oppressive system. And so that was kind of that's basically the point that I'm trying to make is that this is actually very dangerous. Not only is it dangerous, but it's very intentional. It's very Mm -hmm. well thought out Mm -hmm. when you're talking about policing, policing is still overwhelmingly white, Mm -hmm. especially the unions. I mean, this is still a a fundamentally white institution. And so the choice to try and make black people, the face of it is a deliberate choice. You, You are trying to, you're trying to strip, the institution of its racial context, of its racial and and class context, and give us this false sense of progress that somehow the fact that there is a black police chief instead of a white police chief is a measure of progress for all the black people who are still facing violent policing on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. And it's not. And that's one of the scariest and most troubling developments to me of like the post-civil rights era. It's like we, you know, we desegregated these public spaces, but we never dismantled white supremacy. Mm. And so it's like integration became defined as, um, you know, the ability of a black person (laughs) to be in a space Mm -hmm. that used to be all white, but it hasn't changed anything fundamentally for the black and brown people, you know, of the nation of those cities. And, and so that's why I think we have, we have to challenge it. And, and again, that to me is what makes reform so dangerous. It's not yeah. just that reform doesn't work, but it's that particular type of reform that is dangerous to me because we're talking about a possible future where we're not even a majority white nation anymore, but we still have the same exact mm. dynamics mm. because all we did was diversify the bureaucracy that carries out mm-hmm. the violence and oppression. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know? it's so cynical too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is sort of a controversial question. Don't kill the messenger. But present company excluded. You only can pick one. Don't go crazy. What at this moment is your favorite piece in the collection? <laughs> oh, at this moment, you know, maybe another piece was a favorite at another time. They're all great. I read them all. But is there one that sticks out to you? Maybe not favorite, but one that sticks out to you as like was informational or really helpful or, you know, just shout out someone. <laughs> I like Marlon's piece. I'm just going to yeah. say, I mean, the book blew my mind as yes. a book, as, yes. a, as, a, as, an, as an art object. Like I, I've not seen that book before. 
And I actually want to ask your question about her piece. But Marlon, I think, was situated and situated himself to do something that the other pieces just weren't even attempting to do. You know, mm-hmm. Marlon spent time inside. Marlon has spent lots of time more than any person I know trying to stop people from killing each other mm-hmm. in his hometown, right, of, 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 of Brooklyn and now the world. And Marlon is a theorist. So, mm-hmm. like, I just thought, like, there was a really fine mix of theory, um, sort of what we, we might call memoir, um, and just sort of, like, uh, it's, like, travel-y to me. So it's kind of like a travel narrative in a way to me. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I, I like Marlon's a lot, but I loved everybody's piece. In that. Yeah. It's not easy. I think I'm going to go with Dr. Ruha Benjamin, the new Ooh, Jim Crow. Awesome. Because I am like, I don't know if I want to call myself a futurist, but I'm very fascinated by discussion of future and like the development of technology. And that is something that's really fascinating to me. Like the idea of, and frightening, quite frankly, like we, I think it was, um, was it Missouri or Michigan recently? They had a game and during halftime, they brought one of those robotic surveillance dogs out to dance with the band. Do you see that? And it's like, wow, that dog can really do the running man, but it's also (laughs) terrifying because they are like, I saw this thing on an episode of Black Mirror and now it's dancing on a field and everybody's like, like that's kind of freaky to me. And I think those types of things are fascinating to talk about as much as we talk about the past and trying to give like context for today, I think we really have to talk about where is this going? Mm-hmm. Because I'm just scared that it gets slicker, it gets more refined, it requires fewer people. And before you know it, we've eliminated police, but we're still all living under this like technical, technological surveillance that right. does the same thing. Yeah. But can oh. I say one thing about Breeze Peace? Yeah, but, go uh, ahead. So, you know, like, one of the, because uh, I wanted to say Breeze Peace when we asked that question, but you said President Company. Um, <laughs> Whatever that phrase is, present company, not excluded, excluded, excluded. But Breeze Peace read me the most because I come from Mississippi, right? The blackest state in the union, the poorest state in the union, intergenerational poverty, you know, no Medicaid expansion. Like we're 50th in everything you want to be one in. Mm-hmm. And when you come from places like that, any black person, person winning, getting promoted, getting visual space in places we haven't. Like, we inherently cheer that shit, right? Right. And I think, I mean, Bree did this thing where it, I felt in some way what you do is you, you you asking us not to be race traitors, but to actually consider what it means to hoist up Black folks who individually achieve at the expense of all of us, which I think all of us have, have done to different mm-hmm. degrees. But I maybe want to ask you, Bree, how do you, if at all, deal with that internal thing of wanting to see a black person quote unquote win because we just you know historically have been made to lose even when we have won and understand that like often that black person winning means more suffering for the most for the for 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 most of us actually like how do you how do you hold that as a as a, as a person yeah the obama administration was the coming of age mm. era for me the mm. you know because I remember, now I, I never was in the camp, you know, right after Obama won, where they were like, are we a post-racial society? I didn't believe all that. I was never like, mm, you know, that to me was like, y'all are going way too far with it. Right. Yeah. But I do remember like waking up the day after the election and thinking like, wow, like maybe we've like really turned a corner, you know? Mm. And I think 
for me, I think it was, you know, having lived through the Bush administration, it was very obvious to see all the ways that the U.S. government was corrupt under Bush. And, you know, kind of thinking in my mind, well, we just got to we just got to put some new people in there. We got to put some people in there who are, you know, trying to change things and and seeing how things didn't change. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the other moment apart from Trayvon Martin, of course, was Ferguson. That moment, like those first few days in Ferguson where this town was just like under siege from its police department and there was just silence from the federal government and we had a black president. Like that's when it said to me like, wow, this doesn't change anything. Like just because there are some black people in some positions of power does not mean we are free. So then Mm -hmm. what does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know, and I do think that there is some power in it because I don't think that we would have had the level of uprising that we had in the past years had Obama not been elected. Because I do think mm-hmm. it was the I think it was the combination of seeing a black person in power and black people feeling like we should have full citizenship, black right. people feeling mm-hmm. like things were more possible and then running into walls that made people rise up in another way. But I think that we are also through that process seeing the limitations of representation. Like if you are going to be a black mayor, but you're not going to do anything about the police, all you're doing is acting on behalf of the the white corporate structure. And in some ways you become more dangerous Mm -hmm. because because and and Lori Lightfoot's a perfect example. She's not the only one that does it, but she's a perfect example of the people that get in those positions. They act to the benefit of white corporations. Right. And then when you call them on it, oh, but I'm black. Right. Right. Then all of a sudden, then all of a sudden they want to embrace all this identity that that makes you more dangerous than the white politician who was there before, because he couldn't do that. He wouldn't turn around and be like, oh, but I'm black. Right. You know, so so that is that is more insidious in a way to me. (sighs) And that's what I mean, again, about reform being that kind of reform is is really dangerous. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay, I have to be annoying and take a break. Sorry, but we'll be right back. (laughs) Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, 
and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. Brie, I have to do this thing that might make me cry. It might make me emotional, but I have this opportunity to talk to you. And I truly consider you to be an American hero. Like I really like... Your activism and climbing that pole in 2015, I'm going to cry. I'm so embarrassed. I'm sorry. But like to see a black woman be strong and be brave and be powerful and to be the center of attention and to own that space for good, I I really think you've changed who I am and my understanding of like what it means to be a black woman. And and like we have examples in the past, I think like, you know, of course, Rosa Parks comes to mind, but like you really embodied this moment in a way that I will never forget. So first, thank you. But now I have some like really nitty gritty questions that might sound funny, but they're not funny. I'm like, I've been wanting to ask you these questions since that day. And I can't believe I had the opportunity. But how did you know how to climb a flagpole? And was that something that you had prepared for? And because the action took place after the murder of nine people in a church, did you always know that you were going to wait for a moment when people were paying attention to the Confederate flag? Or was this something that you had been planning? And and I know that these things come out of collective action. So I'm assuming that, you know, this wasn't something you just decided, woke up that morning and decided to do. So I don't know. That's a lot of questions, but I just have to know how it came together. Like, I just can't believe I got to talk to you. <laughs> no, no, I, I really appreciate it so much. Um, so my family's from South Carolina, well, from the Carolinas period, but my mom's family's out of South Carolina. That Confederate flag, that has been a thing right. for generations. Like everybody knew about that flag. They raised it in the 60s, um, you know, to make it very clear that they were not with the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. let us know who really ruled the day. And so that was always a thing. And at that time, I was organizing with people in Charlotte, North Carolina. We had an organizing collective called The Tribe. It was like Black folks, you know, working together, addressing issues in the community. And Charlotte is just an hour north of Columbia, South Carolina. So that's all kind of like one area, one region. Um, In fact, one of the people organizing with us lived in Columbia, South Carolina at that time. So People have had conversations about taking the flag down. This is something people have protested for a long time. And, right. and people even have other protest stories about attempting to take the flag down. So it was something we had talked about, but not in any serious way, okay. right? Until the shootings happened, obviously, and like all of this attention focused on the flag there in South Carolina. You might remember at that time, like other places had started taking it down. Yes. I think Alabama went out and like took their flag down right away. But South Carolina refused to lower it. Right. They refused to even lower it for like a day. Um, They lowered the American flag and the state flag, but refused to lower that flag. And I mean, it was, you know, it's very clear the message that they're trying to send to everybody. And so 
that was when we got serious about it. Um, it was about nine of us who met that particular summer. And we said, is there a way that we can really take this down? And someone actually knew a Greenpeace activist in New York who had experienced scaling trees. And that was where the idea mm -hmm. came was like, I think somebody can scale to the top because South Carolina had actually designed this flag where the pulley system was on the inside of the pole. So you can't just like walk up to it and pull it down. Mm. You Somebody would have to be able to reach the top in order to um, actually take it down. So that's how that became the method. And the Greenpeace activist trained me actually over the course of like two days. Wow. On that, we went out to like the park. I was climbing on a lamppost. And then we, we actually did finally find a, a flagpole at a school that I could practice on. And we were wondering, like, is anybody going to look over here and like <laughs> put it together and see, but nobody did. Um, and we rode down there, you know, uh, that morning, Saturday morning, actually the night before the Friday night before late at night. And I went over there and, and took it down and I was working with a team of people, you know, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't just me, but we did recognize like when we were meeting and talking about like who could do it or like who would volunteer to do it. The fact that, I had ancestry in, in South Carolina, the mm. fact that I was a black woman, the fact that I felt comfortable kind of articulating why we had done what we did. That was how it landed on me doing that, because we recognize we're attacking a symbol and we wanted to think about what are we showing people? And we wanted people to see a black woman take it down. We wanted it like we're not waiting on the state of South Carolina. Um, we wanted it to be a, a symbol not just of that moment, but of the struggle itself, mm -hmm. you know, just like just like. The fact that we have to just to take down a flag, right. like that's the thing that to me like continues to blow my mind. Even when I think about it, we're talking about a flag. Yeah, mm. yeah. They could not lower. That's how. That's the level of disrespect Ugh. for our lives, you know. And um, we didn't want it. You know, they tried to have like their official South Carolina flag lo lowering ceremony. You know, a couple weeks later. But we weren't going to allow that to be the narrative right. because we know we know the truth. The truth is not that South Carolina led the way right. on this issue. The, the thing is that they were forced to do it. Right. Well, can I ask one question? Because I don't get I don't get much time either to ask. But, okay, this is a Mississippi question. Did you think they were going to shoot you in your back? That was my follow up yeah. question. Oh, my fault. My bad. My bad. My bad. <laughs> take <clears> my <throat> job. Um, yeah. No. 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 We talked about all of that, and I, you know, and I think. I always tell people if you are planning direct action or something that you can get arrested for or there's physical risk, you got to talk about all of those things. Like, what are all of the possibilities? And so even more than the police, really, we were scared about like somebody else coming by because mm -hmm. there was so much activity down there, you know, at that time. And that's part of why we did it so early in the morning to mm -hmm. reduce the likelihood of there being a lot of people um, around there. So, I mean, we had no there's no other thing you can do in that situation. We had to come to an agreement. That if somebody did pull out a gun and shoot, everybody would run for cover because nobody can wow. help me in that position. Wow. Right. But you can't go into something like that unless we have all agreed that that's what we do, you know, wow. in that scenario. And then, of course, we knew that we were going to get arrested. We knew for sure that like myself and probably James, he was the one that was standing at the bottom, um, that we would probably get arrested. Um, but everybody knew that there might be a risk because we don't know how. Right. Extreme. They might try to go with the retaliation against right. people. So everybody was taking some measure of risk. Okay. I have one more mm -hmm. question about this and then we'll get back to the book. It's two parts. Part one is, can you believe you did that? And part two is, what was the view like up there? Mm -hmm. <laughs> can I believe that I did it? Yes. Because I think, 
Now, if you had asked me years ago, no, not at all. Because I wasn't even imagining being involved in activism or anything like right. that. But I think in retrospect, it makes sense. I think I've always kind of, and like, if you talk to like a lot of my friends and stuff, they weren't surprised when they mm. realized that I was the one that, that you know, had done it. Um, because I was often like, you know, standing up and challenging things or speaking out, you know, I would be right. the kid in class, like when they read something crazy in the history book, I'm like, um, that's not what my mom told me. Right. My, mom, <laughs> my dream my is mom to be that me. mom. I want to be that mom so right. bad. Right, <laughs> right, right. So I think that was always kind yeah. of there. That yeah. element was always kind of there. And then as far as like the view you know, South Carolina is really interesting. They have like deliberately not built up a lot of their cities. So from the from the top of the pole, I could pretty much see like over, you know, the horizon and all the buildings. There's not a lot of, of tall buildings there. Wow. Um, and it just for me, it felt like victory. Like we were obviously trying to make a social statement, but it was also a personal statement for mm -hmm. me. Like I can go to, you know, Rembert, South Carolina and touch my great, great, great granddaddy's tombstone. Like he was enslaved there. You know, my grandma's told me about witnessing the Klan firsthand, you know? So to me, it was about like, I'm not going to allow myself to be intimidated in that way, right? Because what happened in Charleston could have happened anywhere. I mean, mm -hmm. we were, you know, a lot of people are still meeting in churches. Mm -hmm. The church is still to this day, like one of the few buildings that we have in our possession in the community. So a lot of times, you know, we have community meetings at the church. That could have been anywhere. Right. Um, and, and Clementa Pinckney, I mean, I have like one degree of separation from so many of the people who were killed. Clementa Pinckney grew up with my brother-in-law's family. He was like the kid that everybody looked up to. Mm. You know, I know a lot of the, the family members of, of the people who were killed. So it was, it was deeply personal to me too. And I think at that point in time, coming on the heels of like all that we had witnessed, you know, Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, those were just, you know, two of the cases that jump out of my mind just from from 2015 alone. Um, I just I don't see a future. I didn't see a future mm -hmm. if we didn't take a stand. So, you know, the physical risk to me. It meant something, but it didn't mean much because if people are getting shot for no reason, doing nothing, then I'm not safe anywhere. I'm not mm -hmm. like if I if I say to myself, okay, I'm not going to take the risk. I'm just going to stay here in Charlotte. I could still get killed tomorrow because I didn't put or, my turn signal on, like right. Sandra Bland or something, you know. Right. right. Um. And and I think that's at the end of the day, that's what I wanted to communicate is like let's <laughs> let's go, y'all. We can't we can't we can't do this another mm -hmm. century. We just can't. Thank you so much for talking about that with me. I just really touched and honored. And again, thank you for everything. But we have to get back to the book and to the important questions that the people listening want to hear. And we're running out of time. So I'm going to do this fast. First and most important, how do you all write? Where are you? How often do you listen to music or not? Can you have snacks and beverages? That part's important. Any rituals? <laughs> kind of give us a quick rundown of how you how you like to write, or at least how you wrote this, this piece for, for the Abolition for the People book. Um, for me, I, I had uh, four conversations with Gwen Woods um, and then, you know, transcribed all of it. Um, and then I called her up to talk about the transcription, to talk about mm. the shape of it. Um, and then we, we kind of went through together and talked about what we would highlight, what we would take out. And uh, did I have any snacks? I don't know if I had any snacks with that. I, I've been trying to do this thing where I eat ice cream with like, mm. I'm telling you all my business. 
with these little bitty spoons. Because, <laughs> uh, like, I think I, I told myself if I eat with these little spoons, I will eat all the fucking ice cream up. So I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been hitting, I've been hitting up these little spoons when, when I'm doing my work lately. Oh my god, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it worked. It worked, kinda. Except if you go fast, it don't work. What so. flavor ice cream? Oh, I, I, oh, see, I'm getting two parcels. So uh, it was cherry. It was uh, it was it had cherries in it. It was like, oh, I want to, I want to big up the brand because they might be foul. You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> was it Cherry Garcia from Betty? Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, good. Yeah, no, yeah. they're like good guys. They're like okay, really, okay, okay. they're like Vermont, like wokey woke. You never there. know, you know. So yeah, it was Cherry Garcia. Okay, yeah. Brie, what about you? Um, I ruminate a lot. Okay, and I, but I finally made peace with that process because for a while I, I thought like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be a successful writer because I don't just sit down and start writing. But it's okay, mm. like, and I think the little notes app has been actually really mm. helpful for me too because I'll just like jot some things down if a sentence comes to me or a thought comes to me, and then eventually I feel where I can like really sit down and write it out, mm. you know, or at least get the skeleton for it. And then the other technique that has worked for me is sometimes I don't have a complete sentence, but that's okay. Like if I'm trying to get a thought out, but I can't quite figure out, I'll just do like a little dot, dot, dot mm. and keep going. And that helps me from like getting really stuck. I can mm. kind of just like get it out. And I am a snack monster. Oh, talk to me. That's Let's like, go. That's, that's actually a thing in my marriage. So I've been, this is like, I'm coming up on like three years of marriage. That's one of the things we've had to work out because I am the type where like, if something's sitting out for too long, it becomes free for all. <laughs> Slash yours. Am, yes like i i'm like if something goes missing in the house i am the one like you know he'll be like didn't i buy two bags of chips the other day yes you did yeah. they are they're gone. Gone. They're gone. Yeah. They're gone and i always have like a snack obsession and it changes so there's like one thing i eat like obsessively for like a period of time and then i get something else and like what yeah. is your obsession Absolutely. right now Oh my God. Those Cape Cod chips. Please tell me that Cape Cod is okay because I don't know anything about them, hooked. but they're okay, okay in my book because we don't know anything. Please don't tell me they're out union busting right. or do it because right. that's going to be a hard so one. What flavor though? Oh man. I love the um, sweet jalapeno. Yeah. What is it called? The jalapeno. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Amazing. Oh. I'm so glad you guys eat snacks. I get so many freaking writers on here who are like, celery sticks i'm like get a grip Mm -mm. get a life okay Mm -mm. get a life that's not even food okay this question is also very important and since both of you are very smart wonderful writers i feel like it's important that my listeners hear this from you what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try bureaucracy Ooh, that's like an impossible word (laughs) i can never remember the where the a comes and the e and the a it's always throwing me Oh, mine is mad ignorant. Um, oh, God. Grief. Grief. Oh. I flipped the E and the I. Yeah. Yeah. I just discovered today that a word I can't, I, I mean, I knew it, but I really clicked my mind was publicly. I can't spell hmm. publicly. I, I'm adding How do you spell a. It? I don't know. I'm adding A's. There's no A, I guess. <laughs> I thought it was like publicly. 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 Oh, pub- yes. Pub- pub- right. 
public Cali. Yeah, 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 yeah. Apparently, it's like one L and an I. I truly, it was a mistake. There's very little logic to the English language, though. Yeah, right. it's no. true. Yeah, it's true. And some people just are good spellers. And I've had some of them yeah. on the podcast. Also, like the snack, the non-snacker people I despise. <laughs> Actually, Clint Smith comes to mind as a non-snacker and a good speller. <laughs> truly a jerk. What a loser. I, I, bet Clint, I bet Clint messes up on its. He just ain't telling. You know, you yeah. know how like, uh, yeah, a lot of us put apostrophes. When oh, we don't it's really is really hard, yeah. actually. Yeah. I don't know. I have to think it out. Um, okay. <laughs> for people who love Abolition for the People, would you each give maybe two books that you would recommend for them to check out as like good companion pieces? And you can't say Derek's book because I already said oh. it. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, I, I, could, I could give... Um, Wait, you did you you reviewed Marlon's book, right? Yeah, Marlon was on the show. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, so maybe Bird Uncaged for those yeah. who don't remember. So, so I want to I want to say Bird Uncaged. Okay. Um, but I but I also think there's this book called um, The Black Woman. The Black. It's an old book, 1970s. Okay. The Black Woman. It's referred to, um, and I, I think that that's a, a, a interesting sort of because it's a it's a sort of compilation book too with a lot of different writers writing to each other and the the larger world. I don't remember okay. who edited it though. Okay. Cool. Free? Let's see. I think I would say we do this till we free us. Does that count or is that, yep, that not counts. allowed? Okay. Um and I would also say oh my gosh, why is my mind blanking? I see the book, but I can't um the half has never been told. Mm. Mm. That has Ooh. never been told about um, the connections between slavery and capitalism, because I mm. think that I think that uh, there's very little um, understanding, collective understanding of how the modern economic and social system really is rooted in slavery. Like we're mm-hmm. often told to understand slavery as like a minor thing or a side thing. And I, mm. and I think you really have to understand that. To, un- to then apply that analysis to understanding why we can't reform this mm. current system. Oh, I love that. Okay, this is my last question. Um, I normally ask people who's the person you'd want to read the book, but because this isn't, you know, your each of your books, you know, you, you weren't behind it. I'm going to kind of shift the question to be, what do you f- hope that people will keep in mind as they read this book? I... I mean, I'm kind of answering the the other question. I mean, okay. I really would love for reformist minded people to read this book. I mean, I think it's I think it's important for people who are already kind of, um, you know, in the camp of of abolition. But I would really challenge people who think abolition sounds too extreme or they don't understand mm. what people are talking about to pick this up and and read it. And what I would want them to think about is that. We don't have, again, we don't have to have all of the answers. People didn't have all the answers for what you do after you end, a, a, you know, centuries old chattel slavery system. I mean, people right. raised the same questions. They were like, well, how can we abolish slavery? How, if we do that, then how are we going to produce the cotton? How, what happens to this right. industry? And what happens to that? And, you know, you evolve, you deal with it. And so I would say, like, don't think that you have to have all of the answers. Think of, approach it as a question, like mm-hmm. ask yourself the question, what if we can't reform this system? What if that is impossible? Begin with that question mm-hmm. when you read. That's great. Yeah. I think I want my mama um, and, and her generation of, um, well, my mama and her sisters and her generation of people to 
to read this book and think a lot about how it's constructed. We didn't talk much about uh, Tamara uh, Knopper's like data stories and how they're interspersed throughout, but I just think that's also pretty genius. Uh, but, I, but I think it's important for that generation above, I don't know if it's us or me, uh, to actually have hard conversations about representation versus liberation. Um, and I think they had those conversations in the 70s and then they got fully employed and stopped having them, some of them, mm-hmm. and or some mm-hmm. of them got incarcerated stop having mm-hmm. but anyway so i just think that generation of people i would love for them to actually read it and talk with each other and us about what what we all have been trying to do at some points in our lives yeah oh, so great thank you both so much for being here it's really been a treat i will link to both of your social media and everything in the show notes so people can find that um and the book is called abolition for the people and it's really good it's it's uh, I was really surprised how good it was, truthfully. Um, And I just really thank you both for your work and for being here. Um, And everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Kiese and Bree for being my guests. Also, a huge thank you to Christopher Petrella at Kaepernick Publishing for making this episode possible. And please remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for October is Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, October 27th with Nicole Perkins. If you love the show and want inside access, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Mm-hmm.